Neuroprotection and Stroke Care. What does the future hold? Where are we coming from? These and some other exciting topics in today's episode of Stroke FM. As usual, find us on Twitter and other social media platforms and make sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. This is an official CSC podcast episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stroke FM, an official CSC episode. And I have the distinct privilege of having with me Dr. Michael Hill. Today, we're going to talk about a very cool topic of neuroprotection. And we're going to talk about uh, what we know about it so far, certainly the recent uh, important trial in this field and what's coming next. So welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you, Human. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Maybe a bit of a, a, a historical piece. Um, you know, it's it's not uncommon, and it's kind of funny when you you know even you look at journals uh, when they try to uh, when they do editorials on this topic, they'll uh, they'll use topic they'll use words like déjà vu or uh, news pieces will say something like neuroprotection, yet another failure. Uh, you know, cytoprotection, uh, we're we're just not there yet. That kind of stuff. And I just wanted to sort of get your take on uh, where we're coming from in the context of neuroprotection uh, before essentially uh, escape NA1, which we'll talk about. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I, I guess you could start historically, right, and point out that cytoprotection is possible. We know this from hypothermia, right? Uh, and and we, you've seen it going back, you know, hundreds of years, actually, right? We, we know uh, in Canada, for example, you know, a, a, a kid falls through the ice, right? drowns but is recoverable because they were their body temperature got you know got so low that cytoprotection occurred despite ischemia hypoxia and all the negative things that happened to the people so there are examples of this in in humans and we know it well from from animal models so i think when you what well, we you know the excitement that evolved around so-called neuroprotection really started with the the I guess, uh, the articulation or the discovery of the excitotoxic cell death pathway and the idea that you could interfere with that pathway. Um, the first one was Merck's drug, MK801. And, and, then, and then everyone thought, okay, well, we can pursue this, right? We can do this. And, and what has evolved since that, you know, the, that, that scientific uh, discovery was that it's actually really hard to translate into humans. So, and, and many have argued that hypothermia, for example, is a messy pathway, right? You, you're actually interfering with a lot of cellular processes with when you cool things down. It's not just one thing. And to imagine that you could take one one compound or one drug and, and block one specific pathway and get, get a, an effect, um, you know, might have been naive, right? I think if I, from my perspective on the clinical research side, if I look back at the, the multiple compounds, um, just to, to, to digress, Jeff Donnan's graduate student uh, um, looked at this. I, I believe her name was Victoria O'Connell, and there's a nice paper published where she, the title of the paper was 1,026 compounds that have failed to translate into, you know, translate into human stroke, uh, improving human stroke outcomes. Um, and 
So when you think about that, it's, it's, a, it's a, as you point out, an enormous number of compounds. And that's why the deja vu and really, are we doing this again? What are we talking about? Um, so, but, but I think clinically there were, there certainly have been many, many things talked about, right? The idea that maybe the, the animal models were wrong, the preclinical science was wrong. And I, I, I would certainly argue that many of the clinical trials that we did were fundamentally designed uh, so that they would fail. And looking back, the the key thing probably is it is is that we, as a group of we as sort of representing the broad royal we of all the people who did the science, primarily used ischemia reperfusion models to demonstrate that some compound worked in a rat or a rabbit or a dog or whatever, um, and and we didn't we didn't show that we had ischemia reperfusion in humans. And so really, I, I think that the, the change that's now is that with endovascular thrombectomy and, you know, the, the trials uh, in the last, uh, really all the, the big trials were all, the first five trials were published in 2015. So it's been six years, right? But with endovascular thrombectomy, now we have a, essentially a true human ischemia reperfusion model of the like that has been used in uh, in, in the in the preclinical and animal experiments, and for me, this is the number one sort of difference between between the possibilities that might exist now compared to compared to what we had done in the past. That's fantastic. I liked how you separated the the plausibility because, as you said, biologically it is it is plausible. We see this in cardiac arrest. There is level one evidence to cool patients even right now with cardiac arrest, and in fact, there's two modalities, as you pointed out, with therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management. And then the the, the biology, the neurobiology, and uh, as you sort of alluded to, there might be, you know, this may be possible if the, if the pathways of cytotoxicity uh, come together in certain uh, molecular underpinnings, which as we'll talk about, uh, norenotide actually, um, you know, really maybe, maybe is actually in the right re- receptor pathway with NMDA and toxic free radical formation from nitric oxide. So just, that's, that's super interesting. Um, so, um, I think that's a good segue for us to jump into the, to the idea that, you know, what's, what's different in your mind from a biology or a neurobiology perspective that's unique to, uh, the compound or the, the the peptide, if you will, we're going to be talking about this twenty amino acid uh, peptide uh, uh, norenotide, and and sort of in your mind, uh, how how did this kind of evoke more of a, a, a biological uh, plausibility uh, as the right pathway? In addition to the the data that already exists for this drug, with all of the uh, preclinical animal data, uh, phase one, phase two, and uh, phase three trials that were conducted on this. I'll answer that maybe in a in a in a in a reverse way, right? From the clinical side. So I, I'm not the the person who who really developed all the science, right? It's Michael Timiansky's lab, my colleague, and and uh, we've been working with him and his group for for a while. But I would say that the thing that, as a clinician and a you know a clinician researcher, I would say the thing that really got me um, believing this was the was the primate models of that were used. So the drug was tested in a, in a model of stroke, which was very similar to what we see in humans in the ischemia reperfusion setting. So very like what we did in the escape trial and Mr. Clean and Swift Prime and Revascat, et cetera. Um, uh, so, 
So that was what got me to believe that, well, this is actually might be possible. But the, 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 I'll tell you what, from what I know about the drug and the interesting, interesting components of it are that one thing to consider is that a lot of the original, if you go back to the late 1990s, early 2000s, when drugs like Selfatel and Aptiganol and, uh, and others were being tested in clinical research phase two and phase three studies, uh, NXY059, for example, um, a lot of the, the drugs that targeted the NMDA receptor targeted the extracellular uh, component or had extracellular binding sites. So they were actually blocking the channel. Even, even the, the justification for using uh, magnesium sulfate as a potential simple neuroprotectant, non-toxic neuroprotectant, was based on the fact that magnesium sulfate itself would bind inside the voltage-gated channel that's the NMDA receptor and block calcium influx. Right, so so those drugs were all all working at that site, and what we what we learned, particularly from Selfatel, which was which was the tragic trial where where in fact patients more patients died on active treatment compared to placebo, and the trial was stopped early. Um, what we learned is that blocking the NMDA receptor is a pretty harsh thing, right? The the brain doesn't do well when its NMDA receptors are being blocked. So you got hypothermia and you got uh, coma, you got psychosis, all kinds of things, nasty things happen to people and side effects. So one interesting aspect of norinotide is that its mechanism of action is intracellular. It actually works on a, you know, a, 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 a sort of an enzymatic cell signaling cascade, right? So like the you know the best common example we all learned in medical school was was adrenergic receptors are linked by via a G protein right to a whole uh, enzymatic cascade which then results in cyclic AMP and phospholipase C and arachidonic acid production and all all this stuff right so the same principle applies when when the NMDA receptor is activated in an in a pathological circumstance of excitotoxicity um, there is a there is a enzymatic cascade which results in the production of intracellular nitric oxide which is you as you said earlier is toxic uh, to the cell and what norinotide does is it interferes at the intracellular level with the first protein protein binding co- uh, domain that that initiates that cascade right so if you uh, and the, the mechanism of action essentially is or the primary mechanism of action is thought to be blocking that cascade from the intracellular side is the key thing. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't block normal function. So when glutamate binds to the NMD receptor, you still get calcium influx, you still get cell signaling, you still get um, the normal stuff that regulates temperature and you know causes you to think properly and all that stuff. So you you avoid those that that aspect. So that's an, that's a novel component of the of the thing and of, of the of the compound and it may well be that that is part of its part of its explanation for why it might be better than say aptiganol or sulfatel or some of these other other compounds that's actually a very good point because it yeah as you said it, it it allows the modulation to happen utilizing the pathways that are within the cell uh and and neuronatide is thought to um you know interact with uh, this intracellular uh essentially, as you said, not extracellular-facing protein, intracellular protein of uh, postsynaptic density protein 95, which is 
which is very well known to do many things actually for the NMDA receptor. And uh, for those that want to nerd out, the NMDA receptor is a very fantastic, uh, complicated heterotetrameric receptor with uh, multiple domains. And it's, it's actually really cool how it is expressed on cells and uh, different same, same cell can have multiple sort of compositions of an NDA receptor and so on. So as you said, it, it doesn't destroy the, the, the synaptic glutamatergic transmission, but it, but it turns on maybe specific or turns off specific destructive pathways. So that's super cool. So uh, it's a good time to then talk about, you know, the, I guess the biggest uh, stroke trial that was happening uh, last year and uh, sort of wrapping up as, as we were into uh, into the current uh, situation with the pandemic, uh, which was uh, Escape NA1. Uh, and I wanted to sort of, uh, for the audience, if you don't mind summarizing sort of the key take uh, take home messages of Escape NA1 and um, and some of the nuances that really led, uh, you know, specifically talking about the, the activity of, uh, of uh, uh, Alteplase on this, uh, on this uh, molecule which has now led us to, to look into the future. So maybe we'll break that up with just summarizing kind of Escape NA1 and sort of what your uh, take-home messages uh, were. And for the, for the audience, obviously, you were uh, one of the principal investigators, the principal investigator uh, on this, uh, along with our colleague, Mayek. Sure. Thanks, Iman. So the preface was that with uh, the we did, a, we did a, a, a preceding study looking at aneurysm coiling. And Broadly, we're able to show that there was a reduction in iatrogenic stroke in humans who were undergoing aneurysm coiling. And this was the, the preface that led us to believe that, that what we could show, if, if we could get this right with nerminotide, we could in fact show a cytoprotective effect and, and look at improved outcomes. So what we did was uh, the escape trial had finished and um, it seemed a natural thing that the next phase of activity would be to look at what what could you add as an adjuvant right i the way that i was thinking about it i guess in terms of backstory and and myself and mike and others um were thinking about this was that it was clear that incremental gains in endovascular technique choice were going to occur it was clear that people would look at other um other populations, basilar artery strokes or distal occlusions or other things, um, and that or minor stroke, that kind of thing. All of those things would be important incremental um, achievements in looking at endovascular therapy on its own. But the next big frontier was to say, could we, now that we had this ischemia reperfusion model, could we then look at something a little more, um, could we look at sort of cytoprotection? And so that's how it came about. So what we did is we modeled the trial on the escape uh, criterion for entry. So the using the escape trial, which were broad and simple, it was anterior circulation stroke with proven occlusion on a CT angiogram. And clinically and in, and in clinical trial thinking, the one thing that I would say that's been so critical about these current series of trials is that they allow for a very homogenous patient population. If you, ha- if you have a basic CT criteria, ours were aspects greater than four, uh, and you had a CT occlusion. First of all, you have no stroke mimics because you everyone has an occluded artery, right? Everyone has a, a moderate to good scan. Everyone has a moderate to good scan, and then you can design the clinical stuff around it. But there's no doubt that the imaging, simple imaging criteria to establish the population were critical. And the goal was that we would take these patients and randomize them to norinotide or control. 
Now, interestingly, so you, you alluded to the fact that we, you know, one of the things that came out of the, the trial was this interaction between alteplase and nerinotide. Now, at the outset, we knew a couple of things, right? So, first of all, nerinotide is a peptide. It's a small peptide, as you described, and it turns out the regulatory authorities around the world, Health Canada, FDA, EMA, et cetera, if the peptide is small, they classify it as a drug. So, you hear it called a drug, but it's, bio, it's a biological molecule. And we also knew that alteplase is a serine protease, right? So the, the first question that comes up is, well, wait a sec, if you mix alteplase together with, with nerinotide, does alteplase cleave nerinotide? And we knew that it actually does not. If you incubate nerinotide and alteplase together in a test tube, nothing happens. They are actually inert with each other. So it turns out that that it doesn't it doesn't cause direct trouble. So with uh, with that, we also thought that we would see a lot of patients who would be treated at a primary hospital and then transferred into the tertiary hospital. And so they might be given alteplase at in you know where you work at Sunnybrook, they're they, you know at the Major McKenzie Hospital up the road from you, they're going to be giving alteplase. They ship them down to you for for endovascular therapy, it takes an hour at least, right? So, so the, the, the time interval between delivery of uh, a thrombolytic plus then going to endovascular, and if you randomize them in the trial at the main hospital, then there'd be this big delay. And we thought that we would be okay, basically. So the bottom line was we decided a priori to include alteplase pay- treated patients. And despite what was a, a risk, uh, and non-alteplase treated patients in the trial. We didn't distinguish. We said, if you're treated with alteplase, that's routine care. And then they were the patients were, were randomized in the trial. Now, um, the, both all the regulatory agencies in both Europe uh, and North America um, all said to us, well, listen, you've got two drugs here that are being used. In fact, you have, interestingly, that you have drugs that are being used and you have a procedure with different catheters that are being used. And they advised us and said, well, you need to make sure that we have a, a clear, there's clarity that we, that we wouldn't have, a, we would be able to sort out an interaction if we found it. So at the a priori, we actually stratified the randomization on both alteplase use and on um, whether you used an aspiration catheter or a stent retriever. And the purpose was to be able to untangle a device drug interaction or a drug drug interaction at the end. And what that practically means though is that is that for, in this case because because the result was the alteplase interaction is that you know folk people who are listening should should really understand that by design what you ultimately have is a pure randomized comparison in an alteplase stratum and you have a pure randomized comparison in a no alteplase stratum. The only distinction here is that the primary outcome statistically was predetermined or predecided to be the whole trial, the whole intent to treat analysis. So ultimately what happened is the trial was neutral. Um, the, in fact, it was slightly in favor of, of NA1 overall, 2% difference approximately between NA1, yeah, between NA1 and control uh, on, on the primary outcome, which is the modified Rankine score 0-2 at 90 days, so independence. And then when we looked at the the two groups, we had a we had a statistically relevant interaction between alteplase and 
and norinotide, and and we did have we had not no difference at all between catheter types, and that, that's not surprising, but biologically anyway. Um, but it was even not only was it quantitative, it was also qualitative. So interestingly, the patients in the alteplase group who got norinotide did very slightly worse, three percent worse, not significant, um, and but but the direction was negative. And on the no alteplase group, which was about 40% of the patient population, the direction of effect was quite markedly positive, about 9.5% absolute risk difference. So it's close to an NNT of you know, 10 or 11 in that, in that group. Um, and so uh, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the conclusion was that, boy, in that group, it really looks like we have something here. So that was a pre-specified analysis that we would look at these subgroups, but it wasn't the primary. And so what, what has evolved now is that we have decided, well, we better, we could, we better repeat this experiment, right. And show that, show that the first one wasn't a fluke. Now, you know, the other thing that's happened is that we've got a lot more pharmacology understanding. So we think, I think that we have quite a lot of evidence to say that this was actually not a fluke, right. Um, the first is clinical, right? So the the idea that you we did stratify the randomization is really important methodologically because it tells you that tells you that you have a random comparison uh, in that group. So that's really important. We had consistency of effect, right? So all of the other outcomes went in that direction in the no alteplase group, right? Better um, mortality reduction, smaller infarct volume, that kind of stuff. But I think you know when you're thinking about causation and asking a question, is something really true or is it just a you know, statistical fluke. The other things that we think about are, well, is there any biological plausibility to this? And the biological plausibility comes down really to the pharmacology. And uh, and so there's really some interesting data that are, that are new that are now published in Science Translational Medicine that the 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 uh, Timiansky lab has has uh, has looked at. And and I'll I'll just if if you if you'll bear with me, I'll just tell, talk you through it. It's kind of interesting. So. The, it turns out that that alteplase, as I said, uh, you know, initially alteplase and norinotide are inert with each other, but if you add plasma, then then whether it's rat plasma or human plasma, uh, then of course alteplase activates plasminogen to plasmin. It probably also, as we know, alteplase activates other um, uh, precursor proteins, kininogens. Right, that uh, will will activate to kinin, and kinin is a protease, and there, and then of course plasmin will activate not only itself; it's a self-fulfilling or self-looping, uh, but also other proteases. But nevertheless, these proteases then cleave norinotide, and you can detect the breakdown products of norinotide. So, in the rat model, if you give norinotide and alteplase at the same time, all of the cyto in, in a rat stroke model, all of the cytoprotective effect of norinotide is lost. And you can find and detect and pick up um, the breakdown products of the of the um, uh, uh and show that it had several cleavage sites. The cleavage seems to occur primarily in the part of the molecule that's important for getting it across the blood-brain barrier. So, so a really important co- concept is that if you if you cleave it at that site, it's just going to stay in the blood. It doesn't get into the tissue then anyway. So you know, one of the things we know about, about pharmacology is that if you give the drug 
over a 10 minute infusion at the dose that we've been giving it, we get the right concentration in the blood to get enough drug into the tissue in the brain to do its thing. If you cleave the part of the molecule that then gets the drug across the blood brain barrier, you're hooped, right? And you can't, and you can't get it in there. The other thing that's really exciting, which has therapeutic implications for future, is that the group has um, has looked at the D enantiomer of norinotide. So you'll recall, and people out there will recall that uh, our our biochemistry in humans and mammals is that we're we're L isomers, right? For all of our amino acids. I believe all life on Earth actually is one of those interesting things. There's a go back to organic chemistry and antimeric. Yeah, every all proteins are L. Sugars are, are, are right, but yes, all life on Earth. Right. If you take a D enantiomer of norenatide, you st- can actually still get cytoprotective effect, but it's resistant to cleavage by plasma. So if you take the D enantiomer of, of, of um, norenatide and give it at the same time as alteplase in the rat model of stroke, all the cytoprotective effect is, is reemerges and is preserved. And of course, this leads to an obvious therapeutic development, which is you can, can you develop a drug which has maybe, you know, which is the D enantiomer or some variation thereof, which is then resistant to thrombolysis, then you can make it available for, you know, for those cases that are getting thrombolyzed. So the bottom line is that, that the pharmacologic, the pharmacologic evidence, you know, seems to provide strong biological rationale to believe that it's plausible that this, that what we saw in Escape Anyone was not a fluke. And that's now led led us to um, to push ahead with with repeating that section of the trial. We're calling it Escape Next, but but broadly speaking, it's it's essentially a duplicate of the Escape NA one trial, but only in the in the in the patients who are not getting concurrently thrombolysed with alteplase. That's fantastic. As usual, the devil's in the details. And uh, what I really like about what you just said is, um, I mean, uh, uh, Michael uh, Timiansky and also obviously Mayank as well and yourself knew about this interaction. That's very important for the audience to know that people people knew that there was this interaction that you uh, randomized, but you also kind of stayed true to the uh, presentation of the results due to the pre-stated a priori analysis. And uh just a, just a scientific question, which you may or may not know, is, uh, you know, when you organic, you generate actually um, a racemic mixture when you make something. So do we, like, uh, the, the vials that we, you know, those of us, like including myself, who, who were part of the trial giving this to patients, uh, did that have a D and L? But I guess it's in equal proportions generally. It's, it's uh, that's, or, or is it just L? No, it was just L. And, and we know that on purpose because we purified to do that. And, and, you know, just to clarify, you know, we, the same idea that, you know, we, we knew that the possibility of interaction with alteplase existed. Um, we were, we were, um, you know, by initially comforted by the knowledge that there was no, you know, if you put the two drugs together, nothing happened to the norinotide. And I think we were also, um, thinking that the administration, because there would be time separation of the administration of drugs, alteplase first and then norinotide, which was true in almost all of the patients, we thought it would be fine. Um, It turns out that the other way works way better. So there's been more sort of rat experiments to show that if you give norinotide first, you wait half an hour and then you give alteplase, then, uh, then all the cytoprotective effect is, is, is preserved again. But of course in humans, you know, in the human situation, you can't afford to do that, right? You've got to, 
you've got to you got to move it along quickly. Now we have one natural experiment on this, which is occurring, which is that there's another trial ongoing called Frontier, where we are we are um, randomizing patients in the ambulance. Uh, this is occurring in in the Vancouver area right now. It's nearly we've got about a hundred patients to go in terms of enrollment, but um, patients are identified by paramedics with suspected stroke, randomized to receive nirinotide or placebo in the ambulance, and then brought into the you know the one of the the major Vancouver hospitals, and then there, if appropriate, they're getting thrombolyzed or they're getting EVT. Um, and so that, and the time delay between delivery of drug and the institution of revascularization therapy is more than half an hour in most cases. So just, so interestingly, because we've learned this about escape any from escape any one now frontier becomes extremely interesting because in that pop that the part of the population that gets revascularization therapy, we may, we may well see a, a, a an effect of, um, of being pre-treated with NA1. So we're going to see, we're going to see how that goes, but that's a really exciting evolution of, of the, um, of the data that have, that have arisen. Thanks so much. That's super cool. I mean, what's really cool is, as, as you know, unfortunately being demonstrated also by the pandemic, that there are real clinical implications when it comes down to molecular biology and neurobiology, that, uh, that, 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 that the biochemistry, that the neurobiology really, uh, comes to a head. And what's really cool here is, uh, is that that connection exists in this case as well. And it shows you that not to discount the complexity of proteins that are uh, in plasma uh, and that when you when you do it in biology, that the cleavage becomes so drastic. I think uh, I've read a piece by Michael Timiansky that talked about, you know, reduction in, in plasma levels up to 40% of the drug. And then the whole uh, blood-brain barrier thing that you talked about is super, uh, super cool as well. Um, so before we wrap up, um, you mentioned sort of escape next and uh, how it's going to obviously do this in the context of uh, taking people directly to thrombectomy, which again, thankfully, there's a, for those that are in the audience who are fans of this, thankfully, there's more and more evidence that, you know, you can actually take LVOs maybe directly to the cath lab if the lab is open, available, daytime, uh, and have the ability, obviously, to provide rescue TPA or thrombolysis. In, in certain cases, I think I think that that is a future. You know, in my humble opinion, that we're heading to that there are a proportion of patients that we will um, uh, look at and say, you know what, we're going to go directly to the cath lab. Uh, but it's nice not to exclude those lower, uh, uh, like non-LVO strokes, should I say? Excuse me. So I think I think it's cool that that that's in our future. So I wanted to ask you about Escape Next before we wrap up. Is there uh, is there anything else you wanted to highlight about Escape Next aside from that? It's it's keeping it sort of. Uh, fairly, you know, pragmatic inclusion criteria, uh, similar to what Escape NA1 did, uh, and just excluding the administration of TPAs. Is there any other details or about, you know, methodology or uh, a priori analysis that you wanted to highlight about Escape Next? Well, it's, uh, thanks, Homan. It's very similar to Escape NA1. Um, We've made little tweaks to the criteria, inclusion criteria, including proximal M2 occlusions, because you know, uh, with with large deficits, they'll they're gonna they're getting endovascular therapy anyway. They're they're in the same model of the ischemia reperfusion model. <laughs> yes, I may have been culprit to enrolling someone who a very very dominant M two. <laughs> so I do know that. Yeah, some M twos are they're effectively a functional M one. That's right. That's right. And so it makes sense to to include those people as well. Um, I think that there, there's nothing much other than that. Uh, other than we we you know I think we're one thing we're going to really stress is is trying to treat people as fast as possible. 
So the, you know, the, just like, I guess it, you know, it's becoming a principle of stroke therapy, isn't it? Right. So we have door to needle times, door to groin time, door to reperfusion, these for things that are in control of the, of the, of the stroke teams at the hospitals, those things need to be, those times need to be minimized. And the same principle is almost certainly going to apply to, to norinotide door to study drug is going to be an important uh, component. Um, we do not have statistical evidence of this in Escape NA1. I, I think partly it's a sample size issue, but the the trend is clear that the effect size of treat of the of treating is far larger if you treat early, right? And that the time between uh, drug delivery and reperfusion is longer. This is a it's really interesting that this is the case. But but to me, it it's sort of just another example of the principles of stroke therapy you've got to get treatment in quickly so that's a key thing we're going to be we're going to be emphasizing other than that it's um i would say the the big challenges of this have been trying to get this trial going and really running in in the pandemic it's just been it's just been so hard to get through all of the regulatory and all the things and we've been we've been all working super hard at the back end but we're just we're just started we got 50 patients enrolled in the study now and um, you know we're, we're we're I guess just at the very beginning we're hoping we can essentially get this all done within a year from now. So so it's exciting times. I I think it it has the potential to really shake up uh, not only stroke care but potentially other things as well. Right to to demonstrate a potential uh, um, mechanism of cytoprotection could impact not only stroke but trauma. Right, um, you know, uh, concussion and potentially other things, even transplant. Right, imagine how we preserve organs. Right, we do it with with um, with with temperature right now, with with hypothermia essentially. But maybe there are other things we can do. So there, there's lots of potential here that that could open up a lot of really exciting science. So I'm very hopeful for this trial. I, I think there's a really good rationale for this trial, and if we can execute properly. And I think we got a good chance of um, advancing the science in a big way. That's fantastic. That's a very good note to end on. I think what you really emphasized was that the, all of stroke care is moving towards this concept of, uh, you know, door to intervention time and uh, neuroprotection being that new frontier. So that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much for for joining uh, today, and uh, thanks to yourself and Mayank who also. Uh, uh, I know Mayank had a, an emergency. He was hoping to be with us today, uh, but uh, a clinical uh, case. But we really appreciate what's going on. And thank you for uh, spearheading Escape Next with the group. And uh, I think this really is going to be very exciting for neuroprotection and, and maybe even in, in things beyond stroke, which will be super exciting. So thanks so much, Michael. Pleasure. Thanks, Suman. Thank you, folks. And uh, see you next time on Stroke FM.